you some things that happened there with us in the light of our text today in Acts chapter 26, where the Lord said through the great apostle Paul, beginning with verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you to do what? To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not all, I was not disobedient, he says, to the heavenly vision. I want to talk today really about the power of the gospel uh, and the subtopic for that would be from darkness to light. Uh, everything God does is good and his providential will is beyond understanding and it's beyond finding out. So I just ask that you listen to get your nugget today. The racial unity prayer retreat that Brother Otis Grayson and I attended Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at the Benedine, uh, Benedictine Sisters Retreat Center was some kind of experience. And it reminded me of Acts chapter 26. So I want to use a couple of scenarios this morning to relate to us on current knowledge and some past knowledge about how God's providence works. And I want to share with you some things that happened at that retreat. I, I, I was somewhat reluctant about come until I discovered again that Jesus is in charge. You can get scared of stuff if you forget who's in charge. Because see, God made Cumberland too. And he made the folk who live in Cumberland. Just like he made us. But Cumberland stands out as a particular city that uh, has shown its racist tendencies over the year. Those of you who are old enough will remember the time when there was a sign up as you entered Coleman that said, in word, don't let the sun set on you in Coleman. And they made them take it down one time and they put it up again. So it was in a city like that, with that kind of history, that we met to talk about racial unity. <laughs> and that's not coincidental. That's God's providence. And this event was hosted by the Homewood Church of Christ and uh, Jerry Taylor, who uh, is the driving force behind taking this program all over the world.
trying to help people to reconcile. And as I thought about why we were there, uh, it reminded me of the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Today, we could substitute and say between the whites and the blacks. Because the Jews couldn't stand the Gentiles. When you go out there and read some of the stuff the Jews said about the Gentiles, one of which was, a Gentile is lower than a dog. They said those kinds of things about the Gentiles. And for that reason, they felt that if the Gentiles set foot in the temple of God, they were defiling the temple. That was one of the charges they leveled against Paul. That he's defiling the temple. And you know Paul was there to preach to everybody. But they also didn't know quite who Paul was in the way he was coming across. So I thought about that as we sat there this week. And every session that we had was followed. Every period of discussion regarding a topic was followed by two or three minutes of silence just so people could meditate on what they had just heard, you know. And one of the lessons that came out of that was sometimes we give people too much information without allowing them time to process what they just heard so that they can understand what is being said. And it was a wonderful time there that we had together praying and discussing things that people are, uh, are unaccustomed to discussing. And I learned there again, just as I learned from Acts, the whole book of Acts, and the 26th chapter in particular, is a lot of times we have problems with each other because we are ignorant of each other. This, this setting in Coleman of about 40 people gave us the opportunity to talk with some white people who had never sat down and held a conversation on race with a black person. So we're talking in essence about many people who've learned to despise us but really don't know anything about us. And many of those who were there had to admit, as we admitted, that for a person of color, when we turned off of 65 onto the exit or the entrance to Coleman, some things come over your heart. You start getting a little shaky because of the reputation of the people. You start making sure you have your seatbelt on. You start making sure you have both hands where they can be seen on the wheel. All because we were turning into cub. You make sure that you follow the street signs and that you obey the speed limit because you don't want to do anything as a black person to get pulled over and come. 
And that's the way we had to admit we felt coming to this place. Not just one or two, but the majority of them who knew anything about Coleman. The whites who were there admitted that they didn't even, that they have never been in a situation like that. And they were astounded that those of us who were telling them these things, that they could believe them. That they were actually sitting down talking with a black person without arguing, but just reasonably conversating about race relations in this country. And one of the things that became crystal clear is some of the reasons they entertain these attitudes about black folk is because they really don't know us. They don't know our experiences and they haven't talked about them amongst themselves. Now we realized that even as I'm talking to you this morning, that as that session was going on, there may be those in the audience who say, I'm so tired of hearing about racial unity, I don't know what to do. We've been fighting for this for two, three hundred years. And really, we're no better off today than we were through all those civil rights movements. But I want you to understand that I experienced a little taste of heaven Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Let me tell you something. At the racial unity prayer retreat, in attendance, were some 40 black and white men and women from several states as far away as Texas. And they were all Christians. Some were coupled off and others were single. Among those in attendance were Dr. Andrew Harrison, who of course you know is the retired minister of the great Simpson Street Church of Christ in Atlanta. He's also a retired judge, a lawyer, who worked closely with Martin Luther King's father during the civil rights movement. I'm telling you this for a reason. I'll get there. He was one, he was the one, Dr. Andrew Harrison, who planned and orchestrated the first racial unity summit in the 70s. Dr. Jerry Taylor was there. Dr. Jerry, when he was in school in Philadelphia, worshiped with me and the congregation at 63rd and Vine. Young guy then, a little rotund, but here he is leading this effort toward racial unity all across the nation. And he does this out of Abilene Christian University. There were pharmacists there and engineers and university instructors and preachers and elders and truckers and financial analysts and on and on it goes. But I want you to know today that I have rarely seen such compassion and love expressed over a three-day period like I witnessed there. I hope that you will set your calendar 
to attend the Racial Unity Summit that will be held at the Homewood Church May 13 through 16 of this year. It's an experience that will change your life. That was the first time that I heard white people say, what one sister said, I want to apologize to the black people in this audience and all over this country and all over this world. I want to apologize to you for myself and I want to apologize to you for my ancestors and all white folk for simply not understanding your plight. Now, some of you may say, well, how can they live in this country and not understand our plight? Because they haven't lived it. One thing when you're watching stuff on TV, one young man said to me, one young white man, he said, strange that when a black man rapes somebody, all black men are seen as rapists. But when a white man rapes somebody, we don't say all white men are rapists. He said, so it's, it, those subtle differences are what cause us to not be able to relate because we're really ignorant about what each other understands about the other. It did my heart good to stand there and pray and hold hands and see people break down in tears <laughs> over what we were relaying to them has happened to us in our lives. There's some when they heard that we got scared when we entered come and just cried. They don't know what that feels like. And to hear us say it, they were cut to their hearts and vowed that they would do whatever they could do in their bubble to change things along this line. Let me tell you how that played out. The minister at the Homewood Church, Brett Waters, his best friend from childhood was there and he happened to be black. After we had the session on Thursday night, Friday afternoon, they took some time and walked together downtown Cullman and prayed at the courthouse, at the library, at a restaurant. This is how serious people were about this. Since we are in a place that does not recognize black folk as folk, but they do recognize white folk like that, they said, let's join arms and walk down through town to show folk that we're ready for change. And that we're not afraid to do that's because God is in charge. Not Coleman. God is in charge. And of course, when they came back and told us that, you can imagine the response from those who were just even ashamed that they would have to do that to show a city what it means to love. I wanted to share a little of that with you. And I want to share with you about Bill Alexander Robertson. There are some of you in the audience who know him. 
if not by his name, by what he does. Bill Robinson is an American professional hunter. He's the guy who started Duck Dynasty and Duck Commander Company. You'll remember that back in the day. Bill was a businessman. He, he had a reality television show, which you may have watched at some point or another. He was a popular television personality, and he made a fortune doing what he loved. He was raised uh, poor, seven children in the family, went to college, got a degree, became a football player at Louisiana Tech, and has amassed some $15 million because of what he did. The problem is that Phil Robertson didn't believe in God. He made statements on TV that were just outrageous. And eventually, because he felt that his wife and his children were too good, they, they were church attenders, he told them, you too goody two shoes for me. And put his wife and his children out of the family home because they wouldn't stop going to church. This is a man whom many would describe as a self-made man. He came up from nothing. He amassed over $15 million. He didn't need anybody for anything. I want to show you how the power of God works with people who are powerful and who feel like they don't need anything. Or as they meet the eye, we see them and say, I don't think they would want to hear. This comes back to what Paul said and his actions in Acts 26. In Acts 26, we find Festus, the governor there. We find King Agrippa there. And we find King Agrippa's wife, who is his sister. He's involved in an incestuous relationship with his sister. And he's the king. And here is Paul standing before these powerful folk. And he gives way to them by saying, I know that it is a privilege and an honor for me to stand before you and talk to you about why I'm being accused of what I'm being accused of. And I appreciate it. And I was telling the, the Sunday school class this morning, that just makes sense. That when you're trying to teach somebody, you don't go into it condemning them. Even though Paul knew that King Agrippa was sleeping with his sister, he said nothing about that in his defense. How different that is from us. We look at who people are, and that's because we think that we have the power to change folk or that they have the power to change themselves. That's why we avoid certain people. We don't want to talk to no drunks. We don't want to talk to no gamblers. We certainly don't want to talk to no prostitutes. We don't want to talk to no drug addicts because our attitude about that is that God can't save those folks. God can save anybody. And that's why I told you who was at that meeting because sitting at that meeting in common were people who were intelligent 
who had accomplished a lot in this life. And I thought about as I looked around, what a powerful God we serve. What would you think if you had the opportunity to preach to an engineer? A pharmacist. Some folk would say, well, you know, they so learned it and they got all this education. I don't know if I'm ready to talk to them about the truth. They too high for looting. They up here. What about the mayor? W would you try to teach Woodfin the gospel? See, a lot of those kind of people, we avoid because they're rich and powerful and, and, they, and, and they can do what they want to do and they got a lease on life. And, and we've heard, we've been heard saying sometimes, oh, they don't want the gospel. Well, who are you to determine that? They don't want to listen to the truth. They're too busy being political. Who are you to determine that? And I understood that as these people with these varying, what we consider to be super talents, judges and lawyers and financial analysts, and yet God had brought every one of them into the body. And nobody was there flaunting what they had done because they all understood that I am what I am by the grace of God. How often is it we turn people away? And I just said that to say this, Paul, as he stood before Festus and Agrippa and Bernice, didn't shy away from telling them the simple truth. He was like he said he was in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellency of speech. But I came only knowing what, Paul? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. I didn't have to add persuasive words to get you to come. I just told you the simplicity, and that's what Paul did. Told them how Christ came, how he died, how he was buried, and how he got up the third day. Now, some of us would even say about that, well, how can that be enough to convert somebody? You just tell them that Jesus died and he was buried and he got up the third day. Is that sufficient? Oh, you know you've asked that question in your heart. But I want to remind you of what Paul said in Romans 1.16. The power is in the gospel. And that's why he said, I'm not ashamed of it. Well, for him to say he's not ashamed suggests that there are some who are ashamed. Would you be ashamed to tell a high-ranking official that all it takes to be saved is to have faith that Jesus came and he died and he was buried and he got up the third day? and leave it at that. Probably most of us will try to jockey with them first to show our intellect. Well, I can talk on your level, but Paul came with simplicity. He said, the only thing I'm trying to teach y'all today is to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you know the Old Testament. There are some 40 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the coming of Jesus. What he would suffer, Isaiah 55, how he would be led as a sheep to the slaughter. They even talk about crucifixion, how he would die on a tree. 
when at a time when they didn't even know anything about crucifixion. They weren't crucifying people in those days. And every one of those prophecies came through to the letter in Christ Jesus our Lord. So folks, here's the thing. Those of us who were at that racial retreat came to the place where we understood that this is not something that we can do by ourselves. That at the end of the day, we've got to rely on God in order to help us to be faithful even and to learn how to treat each other like brothers and sisters and therefore coming out of darkness into light. In John 17, when Jesus prayed to his father and thanked him for the ones he had given him out of the world, the 12, he says, Father, bless us because we are one and you have sent me to show that we all can be one. I've been teaching them that they all can be one just as you and I are one. He says, by this, what? The two becoming one, that the world will know that you sent me. So you can understand what's stopping people from understanding that Jesus was sent because we still haven't been able to live together as one. And yet Jesus says, this is how the world will know. If we can bring the two the Jews and the Gentiles, the black folk and the white folk, together as one. Now, you may think it's strange that they felt like a Gentile stepping into a temple would defile it, but we know different because there's still some places in America where you can't go to church at an all-white church. You step through the door, they start coming to you with the directory. Evidently, you're on the wrong side of town, so we're going to direct you to the right side. We're going to send you to a church that's black. That's where you need to be worshiping. Have you ever experienced that? Some of us have never experienced it, but many have been traveling on the road and see a Church of Christ sign. You better be careful or you better be ready because they are not beyond meeting you at the door and saying, you know what, you obviously are lost. If you think you come into church here, we don't condone that. At the retreat was a young black couple who worshiped at an all-white church. They admit that the church is racist. They said there are members walking around with screensavers on their tablets and their phones of the Confederate flag. And then they say, think about that a minute. There are people there who let them know openly that they can worship all right, but you need to, you need to be quiet. Stay in your place. Don't come in here with any of that singing and clapping. It's all right to come, but you must come and conform to who we are. Well, I thought we were all Christians. Well, not quite so. And they said to us, people have asked us, why do we continue going there? And they said, because God sent us there. 
young couple who could go somewhere else and be doing their thing. They said, we chose to come here because this is where God led us. And the work that needs to be done is right here. Let me go back to Robertson for a minute. After he kicked his family out of the house, they stayed separated for some, some time. And Robertson had confessed already that his uh, moral life was non-existent. That he had lived a life where he was really going down the tubes. He says, I know that I'm, I'm a pagan, I'm an atheist, uh, my feelings about sexuality and what men ought to be able to do may not be in keeping with other people's. And that's where he was. But it just so happens that he owned a bar. And a preacher came into the bar to teach him about Jesus. You can go anywhere if you'd had to teach somebody about Jesus. Nothing is off limits. But we stand outside talking about, they in there getting drunk. Well, you may catch somebody who's not drunk yet, who needs to know what you have to say. Now, that's not something that we get up and encourage people to do, but we don't encourage it because we don't want you to get drunk. Why are you in there? We ain't worried about the folk in now. We know what they had to do. But we'll tell each other, you ain't got no business down there. You can't call that. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So we have to give way to the providence of God. So he had put that preacher out of his bar. Literally kicked him out of it. But this was the preacher he ended up hearing once he decided to turn his life around. Simply by that preacher asking him, do you know what the gospel is? And he says, I don't know. And then he explained to him about the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the report is that Phil Robinson said, how in the world did I ever miss that? And that started his trek to becoming a Christian. Now listen, Bill Robertson is today a Christian and has been for some years. Bill is not only a devout Christian, he's a member of and an elder at the White Sperry Road Church of Christ in West Monroe, Louisiana, and has been credited with bringing some 300 people to the Lord. If God can change Phil Robinson, he can change Donald Trump. He can change me and you. What we have to do is get out of feeling like we are responsible. And I know what that feels like because a minister, there are times when I felt like that it was my responsibility to get people to believe. I felt like I had the responsibility to change people's hearts, that I alone could get people to buy into righteousness, but that's not my job. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. 
So when I stop trying to do God's job and focus on my job, and you know my job, my biggest job is me. I pointed a lot of fingers in my day. But grandma said, child, never forget that the fingers are pointing back at you. All of us got some skeletons. Probably that we plan to take with us to our grave. But it's only when you are able to admit who you are to God that you're going to find some relief. That's one of the reasons we dwindle because people are trying to fix their own problems. We've forgotten about praying. I don't know how many times we prayed over the last three days. They weren't long and flaunting prayers, but they were prayers that suggested that God, you are in charge. Lead us through this. Lead us through this. Help us to listen to each other. Help us to admit where we've been guilty and help us to start on a different track. They talked about subjects like loneliness and how when you don't reach out to others, you create loneliness in yourself. And loneliness can be slow death. They talked about belonging. They talked about inclusion and exclusion and how we've excluded some folk from our lives and included other people in our lives and how wrong it is for us to think that all people have some worth with God. Somebody asked me what I was going to preach this Sunday. They asked me that at this summit because you know I couldn't sit there and be still. I don't care where I go, I got to voice my opinion on what's being said. And I did several times, and, and they were all things that were personal with me. Personal with me that helped other people to appreciate the fact that he has problems too. I don't care how you dressed, I don't care how much education you got, I don't care how long you've been in the church. The person sitting next to you has problems, and so do you. We're not talking about what they are because as I said to you, when Paul preached the gospel to Agrippa, he didn't say anything about him being a scoundrel. Some of us would have thought that we were in bad company and wouldn't be in the same room with Agrippa. We've done a lot of stuff, but well, I ain't sleeping with my sister though. But you're sleeping with somebody. Is that somebody yours? Otherwise, you're no different than Agrippa. And those are the kind of things that we had to come to grips with that while we were busy pointing the finger at others, we needed to be open. So black people there were able to come to the table without expressing anger. Mm -hmm. Some people are going to come to that summit. Some black folks but they're gonna come because they want a chance to tell somebody off. And that's what this, that, that, it's not about that. We're not coming to remind anybody what, we, what, what they did to us. We may come together to relate our experiences, but we're not there to point the finger. These are people with soft hearts. They wanna know, and they wanna forgive, and they wanna be forgiven. 
That's the way God's folk ought to be. When we have a problem with each other, why can't we sit down and work it out? If you can understand how that can exist amongst us, then you know the chasm that exists between whites and blacks. Folks, we are just as responsible for closing that chasm as they are. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, did they talk about reparations? Because that's what Jesus, you know, Jesus already paid the reparations. But there's some black folk who don't want to talk to white folk unless they're talking about writing a check. Otherwise, leave me alone. Well, that's not what God has taught us as members of the body. Somewhere between now and judgment, the black church and the white church are going to have to become the church. I don't know what you feel about that, but that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to find it in our hearts to talk to somebody about the simplicity of the gospel. So look at where Phil Robinson ended up. A devout Christian, an elder in the body of Christ. Didn't start out there though. Immoral. Hateful. Paganistic. Incestuous. And then we have Agrippa and Festus. You know the Bible doesn't record anywhere that Festus and Agrippa and Bernice and Pilate, those people ever obeyed the gospel. And that's what I was speaking of on Sunday night as I close out. And we'll deal with some more of this tonight. On Sunday night, I asked the church if they were hearing their preacher. Because, you know, God sends everybody a preacher. I'm your preacher. But can you hear me? Can you hear me? Isn't it ironic? that God could send a preacher your way that some of you will have difficulty hearing because of who he is and how he carries himself and how he dresses and how he talks. There are some people who won't listen to you if you split infinitives. I don't mean they'll get up and leave, but they just kind of click you off up here. And if you're not talking about what they want to hear, they'll click you off up here. Has God sent in me to you somebody you can't really hear? Because you can't get beyond something. Jesus kissed, I mean, uh, Judas kissed his preacher and betrayed him. What are you going to do? Can you hear me as your preacher? So here's what I'd like for you to meditate on. Are there some people that you have ridden out of your life because you don't think you can say anything to bring them to Christ? Are there some folk you avoid because the spirit is saying say something, but you don't want to say something because you're kind of ashamed? How do, you, how do I go to talking to them about sports to, oh, by the way, let's talk about Jesus. 
Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the simplicity of the gospel? Have you ever been in a setting where somebody asked a question and people just were laughing at them? It's like, well, man, why would you ask a simple question like that? If anybody had to be listening, if anybody were listening to Nicodemus and Jesus' conversation, that's what they would have said about Nicodemus. What kind of simpleton are you to ask if a person can enter his mother's womb the second time and be born again? Jesus didn't say, oh, you're so stupid. Goodness gracious, Nicodemus. You're supposed to be a leader and you don't know any better than that? Jesus says, you just misunderstand. In other words, you're ignorant. You don't know. But let me tell you that I'm talking about not flesh reproduction, but spiritual reproduction. That that comes by way of the water and the Holy Spirit of God is what I'm talking to you about. So somewhere along the line, church, we're going to have to get beyond our personal problems with other folk and just preach to them the simple word of God. Do you believe, look, it can be asked in a question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That's the only thing we ask people when they come up. We don't ask them how many wives you got. How long you been working on your job? What is your job title? Now some places they ask you that. How much money you got in your bank account? And then they tell you whether or not you're ready to follow Christ based on whether you want to answer those questions. But in the church that our Lord built, our faith is based on this, that Jesus died for us, that he was buried in the heart of the earth, and that he rose again the third day according to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Are we satisfied just being that simple with folks? Mm. If you are, then there's much to be learned. Much to be learned. I want you to think about and meditate on that today. And come back tonight and let's talk some more about the power of the gospel and our responsibility, as Paul says, to turn men, or as Christ said to Paul, to turn men from darkness to light. That's our responsibility, to start the ball rolling. And then the spirit will give the increase. You have to know when to let go of the wheel. So if you're here today and you've heard this message and you believe it, then the thing for you to do is to decide within your heart that you're ready to accept your part of the responsibility of calling men from darkness to light. But also with that, we need to be repentant. That's something that was very clearly evident at our meeting these last three days. People were repentant in their spirits. They didn't come looking for anybody to pat them on the back. They didn't come looking for anybody to give them some money. They were there to repent of their part in whatever exists with racial disunity. I want you to know that Christ wants us all to be one and the way we start that is by determining that we're gonna follow him and not ourselves and not each other. So after you've heard that word and believed it and you've become repentant in your heart, you confess Christ as the Son of God, then you're ready to be added to this body. The church is designed to be a place where we can practice our faith. You know, just as we did last week when we took all of those gifts that you brought over to Jesse's place 
I was so encouraged by that. A whole truckload of stuff we took over there and dropped off. But let me remind you of this. That's not something the Spirit needs you to do every now and then. If the Spirit of God is leading you to do that, he leads us to do that every day. How often is it we run into disadvantaged people? Those who don't have the basic necessities of life. Oh, it's much too often for us to say, well, we're going to do it every February. What in the world is that? What about every week? Well, now you're, now you're asking too much. Bro. Everything you got, God gave it to you. And just like he gave it to you, there are some folk right here who can testify that he'll take every bit of it away. I'm a witness. God took me from having everything I had to living out of the car. You may not have known that, but I don't mind sharing. Because that brought me to where I am today. I needed to live in the car. Because I thought I was making some things happen. And all the time I was going through that, the question kept coming to me, where are your friends now? All the questions Jesus was asking me through his where they at? Where the ones who said they loved you so much and respected you so much? And I realized sitting in the car that I didn't have nobody but Jesus. If you haven't come to understand that, I hope you will. Because just as surely as you live, you're going to get to a place where nobody has the answer to your problem but Jesus. <laughs> Nobody can tell you how to get to where you're trying to go but Jesus. It's just 